Are we live streaming yet? Yeah. Oh, great. Everybody gets to see what professionals we are. Welcome to MitCast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 396, recorded on Sunday, the 18th of September, 2022. Hey, everybody, it's Bill. Still not dead yet. I'm Joe. The process in my brain to come up with something more clever has timed out, so I'm Norbert. I'm Moss, as usual. First up in the news, Stalin goes manual on C. DNF5 arrives in Fedora. LibreOffice gets fumigated. Gnome comes into its shell. They have put hair in the blender. Avast buys your cookies, and Intel fogs the processor market. In security and privacy, we have multi-stage malware, website leaks, and shell attacks. Then in our wanderings, Norbert is cutting corners. Moss tries a different mint. Joe keeps moding? Modding? Modding. 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 And I fix a few broken arches, too, in fact, again. In our innards section, ransomware goes to school. And finally, the feedback and a couple suggestions. First up, the news. Richard Stallman announces GNU C language reference manual. And this is from Pharonix. Uh, GNU founder, GNU founder Richard Stallman announces the release of GNU C language introduction and reference manual for covering the GNU extensions to the C programming language. The manual is written as text files and is published under the GNU free documentation license That's version. That's Texi files. Texi files. That is a GNU free text editor, Texi. Uh, documentation license version 1.3 plus those interested can see Stallman's announcement while the new manual is found via uh, the Git repository, which we will have linked in the show notes. Fascinating. Norbert. Fedora 39 looks to use DNF five by default for better performance and improved user experience. This is from Foronix. Fedora, I thought, Actually, I thought it, this would be Fedora 38. <clears throat> Fedora 39 next autumn will likely replace DNF4, libdnf, and D Fedora 39 next autumn will likely replace DNF, D libdnf, and DNF automatic with the new DNF5 packaging tool and libdnf5 support library. DNF5 should improve the user experience and deliver better performance for dealing with software management on Fedora Linux. The change proposal still needs to be signed off on by the Federal Engineering and Steering Committee, FESCO. But given Red Hat's involvement with DNF5, this will presumably be okayed and hopefully all buttoned up in time for completion during the Federal 39 cycle. And there's a quote. The new DNF5 will provide a significant improvement in user experiences and performance. The replacement is the second step in the upgrade of the Federal Software Management stack. Without the change, there will be multiple software management tools, DNF5, old microDNF, package kit, and DNF, based on different libraries, libdnf and libdnf5. 
providing a different behavior and not sharing a history. We can also expect that DNF will have only limited support from upstream. The new DNF5 development was announced on Fedora Devel list in 2020. DNF5 does away with the Python code to yield a smaller system, faster performance, and to replace the existing DNF and microDNF tooling. DNF5 also unifies the software management stack behavior, introduces a new daemon as an alternative for package kit for RPMs, and should perform much better. Faster performance can be expected around querying of repositories, advisory operations, RPM queries, and metadata sharing. Next up, LibreOffice 7.2. Sorry, I, I, have some, I have some comments. Well, reading this on my Fedora desktop, I am recording on my Fedora laptop. I am a bit confused. I thought that DNF was supposed to be replaced by MicroDNF. So when I heard about DNF5, I assumed it's essentially the same as MicroDNF. But now they are not, use, not going to use MicroDNF. This is a bit That's confusing. What the article said. This is a bit confusing, although I have seen a video comparing package uh, repo list, uh, package list refreshes in DNF4 and DNF5, and DNF5 was significantly faster. Still not quite as fast as something like Void or Arch, but that's probably because it has to fetch more data. For, th for things like, uh, I assume, integration with the graphical software stores and such, because as far as I know, Arch... For, because as far as I know, Pacman on Arch doesn't work with PackageKit. I might be wrong. Although I also I also thought this was going to be merged in Fedora 38. Sometimes people say when sometimes people ask when they hear learn about when they hear someone is using Fedora how they can uh, um, what how 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 do they deal with DNF being so slow? Well. I love Fedora, it's my favorite distro probably, but I still, and I still uh, think that it, there is some truth to that it is slow, but it's not quite slow. I used to not have package kit and every time I wanted to upgrade my system and I type DNF, pseudo DNF upgrade, I would have to wait for it to refresh the list. But then I just realized if I have package kit installed, it will refresh the repos in the background. So every time I want to upgrade the system, it, I don't have to wait for it to refresh. It just spits out the list of packages and then I can download them. So, and you don't, uh, well, uh, the thing about computers is that as much as I like to think with my computer, you're supposed to, you're more supposed to, you also should use your computer to get things done. So what I'm trying to say is that, well, never mind. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, also, it use, if you just need to install a software every now and then, you can... And not, and you don't have, and you, if you don't upgrade every day, or you don't have to install something every day, you shouldn't spend the majority of your time using the package manager, but rather using the computer to get things done. As much as I like, as much as I like tinkering with my computer, and probably, and I probably still spend more time with my package manager than I should. Anyway, well, I'm I'm gonna mention that there is quite a bit of long news and security today even with us having it split into the main topic so we might want to chug this along okay so moving on to the next story LibreOffice 7.3.6 is now available for download 50 bugs have been fixed this is from nine to five linux LibreOffice 7.3.6 the sixth maintenance update to the LibreOffice 7.3 office suite series is out the LibreOffice 7.3.6 point release 
addresses more bugs and further improves compatibility and proprietary document formats of the MS Office suite, such as DOCX, XLSX, and PPTX files. According to the RC1 and RC2 change logs, a total of 50 bugs were squashed, which should strengthen the stability and reliability of the LibreOffice 7.3 Office Suite series, which is the which is supported until November 30th, 2022. And that's for the community package only. Norbert? Gnome Shell and Matter 43 release candidates bring last minute changes. This is from Foronix. The release candidates are out for the GNOME Shell and Matter updates ahead of this month's GNOME 43 desktop debut. While past the various freezes, the GNOME Shell and Matter 43.RC releases do bring some notable last-minute changes. The Matter 43 release candidate includes changes such as remembering of monitor scaling when switching configurations, embedding the Wayland output name into screencast streams, support for the Max BPC connector property in addressing monitor issues, improved heuristics for fallback monitor modes. Color management is now handled by Matter rather than the GNOME settings daemon. Support for scan out of off-screen rotated views. Avoid swapping redundant portish portions of buffers on screen. NVIDIA with GBM now uses the atomic mode setting path. Many crash and memory leak fixes along with other general bug fixes. The full list can be found via this link, which is well, to get to the link, you have to get to another link, which is in the show notes, and the link is in the article. GNOME Shell 43 release candidate includes changes such as tweaking the quick settings appearance, improved handling of recurring events, working around the pipefire regression for screencasts, various other bug fixes, including memory leak fixes. And there is another link. These are two commits where you can see the details. GNOME 43.RC state marks the hard code freeze period beginning. GNOME 43 stable release is expected to happen on 21st of September. And speaking of GNOME, we have some mobile news. GNOME Shell on mobile is shaping up nicely, gets new navigation gestures and quick settings. This is from 9to5Linux. GNOME developers are working on a native, native port of GNOME Shell, the main UI of GNOME, for mobile devices, Linux phones and tablets, since the release of GNOME 40. Jonas, Dre Jonas Dressler shares that there's been a huge amount of progress since the last update in May 2020, and that GNOME Shell on mobile received a sophisticated 2D navigation gesture system similar to what Android and iOS offer, but with a single overview for both launching and switching. In addition to the two-dimensional navigation gestures, GNOME Shell on mobile automatically also received a new shell search experience featuring a single column layout for narrower screens. A revamped on-screen keyboard gesture input with a redesigned emoji keyboard that's more in line with that of Android and iOS, as well as a new fancy gesture to hide the keyboard. On top of that, GNOME Shell on mobile got the new quick settings that will also be available in the upcoming GNOME 43. New gestures for closing and hiding notifications and the app grid layout has been adapted to portrait sizes and is now feature and it now features a new style for folders. I'm really excited for this, mainly because I've been using GNOME uh, 40 Plus, currently 41 on my uh, Surface tablet, which I mostly use in a portrait layout. And I think the desktop GNOME shell is perfectly usable. It doesn't have the 2D gestures, 2D gestures meaning that you would be able to switch workspaces and go to the 
overview with just one diagonal swipe. So you didn't, wouldn't have to wait for one animation to finish before starting the next one. And uh, the other thing is that my only complaint currently about regular no monitor screen is the keyboard, which is doesn't feel as natural as a native uh, uh, touch. It doesn't feel as natural as the keyboard on, on Android, for example. Uh, mainly the way you uh, bring it up with a gesture and you can only hide it via clicking an arrow. And sometimes it's a bit hard to nail gesture to bring it up. I'm not sure if this will, given the size of my tablet, I'm not sure if uh, it would make sense to use this uh, mobile GNOME lay uh, layout, but I will probably try it in the future. Moss? Okay, Blender 3.3 LTS is officially released with new hair workflow and support for Intel Arc graphics. Blender 3.3 brings a lot of changes, starting with support for Intel Arc graphics, which require Linux Intel driver 22.26.23570 or newer, AMD GPU rendering for Vega graphics cards such as Radeon 7, Radeon RX Vega series, and Radeon Pro WX910 on Linux, a new filmic sRGB color space for images, as well as a new hair workflow using a new curves object. The Blender UI has been updated with text fields that show candidates in more situ situations, always visible scroll bars, improved layout of file browser UI settings and the preferences, as well as improved performance of the view layer and library overrides display modes. This release implements an image from the plane marker operator that creates or updates image data block from pixels seen by the plane marker, implements motion tracking data, prefill for compositor nodes, adds mask blending factor for combined overlay and a mask spline visibility overlay option, adds a filter method to strip transform, and adds a new retiming system to the sequencer. The timeline and dope sheet editors have been updated in Blender 3.3 to display grease pencil keyframes, as well as the action mode of the dope sheet, which now shows the action's active custom properties. The grease pencil received material selection menu using the U key in sculpt mode, a new noise modifier parameter that lets you define when the randomized noise pattern changes and change the noise in keyframes, a new ping pong mode for the time offset modifier, as well as a bunch of new line art functionality, including new shadow and light contour calculation, new silhouette functionality, and intersection priority. Blender 3.3 also adds new features to the modeling area, including a new property in the shade smooth operator to enable auto smooth, a new snapping method that snaps transform geometry to nearest space, improves UV quality and workflow, and the ability to use the surface deform modifier when the target mesh increases the number of vertices. Support for packing UDIM texture sets into .blend files is now supported in the new Blender release, which adds an operator to duplicate the active color attribute layer, adds an elastic mode to the transform tools, adds new icons for the trimming tools, and significantly improves the drawing performance when sculpting with the EV enabled. Among other noteworthy changes, Blender 3.3 improves the performance of the software when importing Alembic, OBJ, or USD files that contain massive amounts of objects, adds support for presets to the export operator, adds support for importing and exporting .obj vertex colors, and adds an experimental STL importer when written in C++ that's up to eight times faster than the Python one. Boy, sounds like I really know what I'm talking about. This is how I do 
uh, full circle weekly news. I just keep reading whatever's on the screen and heck with understanding it. <laughs> That's what show notes are for. Mm. Okay. Beloved, gr beloved browser extension acquired by not so beloved antivirus firm from Ars Technica. Browser extension, I don't care about cookies, does one job and does it well. It auto automatically removes the annoying but mandated this website uses cookies notices from websites. People like it, donate it to it, and don't ask more of it. A rare find for free software. Damn, this is the blank, bro. It saved like 50 minutes of my gaming time, LOL, reads one review on the tools Microsoft Edge add-ons page. The tone changed when the solo developer posted great news on the extension's website. Avast, a giant in cybersecurity that just completed an $8.1 billion merger with Norton LifeLock, will acquire the 10-year-old software for an undisclosed price. Quote, I am proud and happy to say that Avast, a famous and trustworthy IT company known for the wide range of products that help secure our digital experience, has recognized this value, end quote, developer Daniel Kladnick wrote recently. Kladnick wrote that he would keep working on the extension, it would remain free, and ask for donations to cease. Commenters on Facebook, Twitter, and the extension's various installation pages did not agree with Kladnick's characterization of Avast. Quote, congratulations on killing the extension. Avast is a cancer on this planet, end quote, wrote a Facebook commenter. Quote, the cure is now worse than the disease, end quote, wrote another. Quote, sad to see a great pop-up blocking extension being acquired by a well-known pop-up creating company, end quote, someone opined on the Chrome extension page. It, it Anybody else struck by the irony of somebody posting that on Facebook? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it does <clears throat> kind of suck that they got bought by Avast because I was looking for this extension. I couldn't remember what it was called. And after I read this, you know, I do have it installed now, even though it's owned yeah. by Avast or will be. But, you know, if Avast does turn it into a cookie or not a cookie making, but a pop-up making machine, someone else will come out with another one that does the exact same thing yeah. as the old one. And Well, the point is they get to collect all your cookie data now. Whereas they didn't have access to it previously. Well, yeah, I guess there's that. Oh. But as to the developer, you know, I'm I'm Daniel Kladnick. I'm really, really glad that he probably sold this extension for a lot of money to Avast. Yeah, probably yeah, a vast I'm, amount of money. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, uh huh. I, I'm glad he made it big because, you know, he, he made this great tool. And, yeah, he probably got a lot in or at least some in donations. But yeah. getting getting a large amount of money from Avast. You could say on that. Or as Norbert yeah. said, a vast amount of money. A, va a vast amount of money from Avast. And, and, you know, I'm sure he'll love it. I am happy I... for him. So I wanted to mention, I think uBlock Origin also has this feature, buried somewhere in the in its settings, the removal of uh, cookie pop-up messages. Uh, I haven't tried it yet. This one I know works every single time, and I don't think anything's going to change for anybody. It just sits there and runs, and, and uh, I think to use that as a vehicle to send their own pop-up messages would be defeating the purpose of it and they people would just end up uninstalling it and using something else like joe said if it ceases to be what it's been for 10 years then somebody else will come out with it that's 
That's the beauty well, of open source. As I said, they bought a thing that lets you turn off the pop-ups without turning off the cookies. And that means they get to collect their cookies. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I just looked it up and as far as I can tell, it's not open source. So with that in mind, if it comes to choosing between an open source and a non-open source software that does the same, uh, I will probably try this feature in, in Block Origin. And if it does the job, I will Tell probably go with the open source solution. Yeah. I'm looking at uBlock, but I don't see it. And yes, I am going through the rest of the settings. I have it set well, to let advanced. Me, let me look as well quickly. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up later. But for now, okay. there is a show. Yep. And the next article. Which is you. Me? Okay, wave goodbye to Celeron and Pentium. Hello, Intel processors. This is from TechRadar. Intel is simplifying the branding for its lower-end CPUs for laptops, with the Pentium and Celeron brands to be retired as part of the next year. Man, Pentium hasn't retired? What's it been, 30 years? So what will replace these veteran brands, which have been around since the 90s, 1993 in the case of Pentium? The new family of Intel's baseline CPUs will be called Intel Processor. That means wallet-friendly chips will be Intel Processor, and the mainstream offerings will remain Intel Core with Intel vPro as the pro-targeted CPUs, as is the case now. The Intel Evo certification will also remain as a guide to the quality in the laptop world. The Pentium and Celeron brands are to be ditched starting Q1 of 2023. Intel says, so they'll hang around for a bit after next year kicks off. As Intel puts it, the move is about streamlining its brand offerings for the PC and making it easier for customers to recognize the value proposition of these CPUs at a glance. Which has everyone asking, what processor do you have in your computer? Oh, I have an Intel processor. Okay, which one? It just oh, says I Intel have a Dell. <laughs> yeah, well, well. It's got a Pentium. I've got a Pentium in my laptop I take on the road. I thought they were, I, I didn't even know they was using that anymore until I bought that thing. Granted, granted, you know, you, you say that, but then again, saying I have an i5 has no meaning, and I oh, have really? an i7, i3. The only one that has meaning is an i9, and that's only because they've only been out for, you know, a couple of generations. Those things so. don't exist. I know. I have, I have an i3, but I don't use the i3 window manager. Also, I found something in the uBlock Origin settings on the filter list page. There's a section called Annoyances. If you expand that, there are various uh, lists, also multiple ones that I think are related to cookies. So I think if you uh, if you turn those on, that might be it for removing the pop-ups. It's not very straightforward. So yeah, it makes sense that a dedicated extension would be a more would have more users. But it's there if you can find it in your block origin. All right. Well, I have nothing else on that. Moving on to security and privacy. Uh, first up, new Linux malware evades detection using multi-stage deployment. This is from Bleeping Computer. A new stealthy Linux malware known as Sh Shikitega. Shikitega has been discovered infecting computers and IoT devices with additional payloads. 
The malware exploits vulnerability to elevate its privileges, adds persistence on the host via cron tab, and eventually launches a cryptocurrency miner on infected devices. Shikatega is quite stealthy, managing to evade antivirus detection using a polymorphic encoder that makes static signature-based detection impossible. While the initial infection method is not known at this time, researchers at AT&T who discovered Shikatega say the malware uses a multi-step infection chain where each layer delivers only a few hundred bytes, activating a simple module and then moving to the next one. Shikatega malware is delivered on a sophisticated way. It uses a polymorphic encoder and it gradually delivers its payload where each step reveals only one part, only part of the payload, explains AT&T's report. The infection begins with a 370 bytes ELF file, which is which is the dropper containing encoded shellcode. The encoding is performed by using the polymorphic XOR additive feedback encoder, Shikata Godnai, previously analyzed by Mandiant. Using the encoder, the malware runs through several decode loops where one loop decodes the next layer until the final shellcode payload is decoded and executed, continues the report. The encoder stud is generated based on dynamic instruction substitution and dynamic block ordering. In addition, registers are selected dynamically. Makes no, perfect think... sense to me. Oh, man. Yeah. Somebody had a lot of fun with that shell script. Based on Shikitaganai, it is probably a wordplay on some Japanese words that I... While Joe reads the next article, I will do some. I'll be right back. I, I have a rabbit hole to, to dwell yes, into. Sir. Over 80% of the top websites leak user searches to advertisers. This is from Gleeping Computer. Uh, security researchers found that roughly 8 out of 10 websites featuring a search bar will leak their visitors' search terms to online advertisers like Google. This practice has the implication of breaching the user's privacy and leaking sensitive information to a massive network of third parties who could then use this data to deliver targeted advertisements or track your behavior on the web. This data is shared among the network members or sold to more entities, leaving users unable to estimate their exposure or stop its de dissemination. While some websites may declare this practice in their user policy, visitors typically don't read these and assume that the information they enter on embedded search fields is isolated from big data brokers. Does anybody actually assume that anymore? I assume if I do something on the internet, everybody knows it. Joe, we are advanced users. To conduct users. This, yeah. To conduct this research, Norton Labs created a crawler capable of going past interstitials or other browsing disruptions and human confirmation challenges to scan what happens on the top million websites. The crawler located the search input on the visited sites, searched for the term jelly beans, and then collected all network traffic. The idea was to scrutinize the HTTP network request to see if Jelly Beans appeared anywhere in requests to third-party partners, which it did in 81.3% of the cases. The network requests comprise the URL, the request referrer header, 
which provides more details about the resource to be fetched by the server that receives the request and the payload, which typically contains browser fingerprint and clickstream data. The results showed that most search term leaks came through the referrer header and the URL, while payloads contained jelly beans in 21.2% of the examined cases. In total, 81.3% of the visited 1 million sites leaked information to advertisers via at least one of the inspected three locations. And the other 20% of um, the information that wasn't leaked, yeah, that was leaked too. You just couldn't find where. 18.7. Yeah, 18.7. Norton Labs underlines that this should be taken as the lowest number with the actual percentage likely being even higher. Yeah, basically what we said. For example, many payloads in the HTTP requests were obfuscated, so the analysis tools couldn't identify the search string, but it might have been there. And doesn't everything go over HTTPS nowadays anyway? As for the disclosure of the data sharing practice on privacy policies, the crawler found that only 13% mentioned search terms specifically while 75% contained the generic sharing of user information with third parties statement. Unfortunately, there's not much that users can do about this problem besides setting their browsers to block all third party trackers from loading on the websites that they visit. I mean, even DuckDuckGo got called out for sharing information with uh, Google, wasn't it? It was Microsoft. Microsoft, oh, Microsoft, yeah. my and, and they did cut off Microsoft on that, which Microsoft tried to sue them for, but that's okay. Norbert? I have some updates on the on the apparently, on the Japanese sounding phrase that was hurting my brain. And I have no idea based on what, but so maybe I wasn't paying attention. They named it Shikitega because it is using the, so it is, AT, I found an article in, in itnews.com.au AT&T has named the malware Shikitega after finding that it uses the Shkataganai polymorphic XOR additive feedback encoder. So Shkataganai is a common Japanese uh, phrase that I, for some reason, didn't recognize. It means that there are no means, so nothing can be done about something. But I'm not sure how that how Shikataganai became Shikitega. Okay, I'm probably uh, suspect to the Dunning Kruger effect because I think I know enough about Japanese to make sense of this, but I probably don't. So, moving uh, forward, there's a, a GIF shell attack that creates reverse shell using Microsoft Teams GIFs from Bleeping Computer. A new attack technique called GIF shell allows threat actors to abuse Microsoft Teams for novel phishing attacks and covertly executing commands to steal data using GIFs. The new attack scenario shared exclusively with words. Shared exclusively with bleeping computer illustrates how attackers can string together numerous Microsoft Teams vulnerabilities and flows to abuse legitimate Microsoft infrastructure to deliver malicious code, malicious files, comments, and perform exfiltrating data via GIFs. As data exfiltration is done through Microsoft's own servers, the traffic will be harder to detect by security software that sees it as legitimate Microsoft Teams traffic. Overall, the attack techniques, overall, the attack technique utilizes a variety of Microsoft Teams flows and vulnerabilities. Bypassing Microsoft Teams security controls, allow, security controls allows external users to send attachments to Microsoft Teams users. 
modify sent attachments to have users download files from an external URL rather than the generated SharePoint link. Spoof Microsoft Teams attachments to appear as harmless files, but download a malicious executable or document. Insecure URI schemes to allow SMB NTLM hash, hash theft or NTLM relay attacks. Microsoft supports sending HTML base64 encoded GIFs, but does not scan the byte contents of those GIFs. This allows malicious comments to be delivered within a normal looking GIF. Microsoft stores Microsoft stores Teams messages in a parsable log file located locally on the victim's machine and accessible by a low-privileged user. Microsoft servers, Microsoft servers retrieve GIFs from remote servers, allowing data exfiltration via GIF file names. The new attack chain was discovered by cybersecurity consultant and pentester Bobby Rauch, Rauch, Bobby Rauch, who found numerous vulnerabilities or flaws in Microsoft Teams that can be chained together for command execution, data exfiltration, security control bypasses, and phishing attacks. The main components of this attack is called GIF shell, which allows an attacker to create a reverse shell that delivers malicious comments via Base64 encoded GIFs in Teams and exfiltrates the output through Norbert. GIFs retrieved. Yes, I'm sorry, I got to cut you yes, off. Yes, it's we kind of yeah. it, it was going on and on and on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay. We got to get we got to keep moving. Got to get back to the script, son. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So Teams has apparently so many vulnerabilities this, that such a chain could be constructed. Maybe it's not such a bad thing that Microsoft is ending support for Teams on Linux. Well, this is not Windows cast. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, moving on, though, GIF shell or GIF shell attack creates reverse shell using Microsoft Teams. That's GIF. the one I just read. Oh, you just read that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what he was working on. He wasn't continuing with the I, previous one anymore. We could, we, could have, we could read it again. Oh, I couldn't tell the difference. It sounded the way he did that. It sounded they they like just went right into each other. Yeah, okay. So did I cut him off in the middle of that? Yeah, you did. You did. Oh. That was, that was harsh, man. Harsh. Well, sorry, Norbert. By the way, just to sum it up, I'll just jump, jump to the end. GIF shell works by tricking a user into loading a malware executable called the Stager on the device that will continuously scan the Microsoft Teams logs located at there's a log file path. So I assume whatever it can fetch, whatever other code the, the attacker supplies for it. Sorry about if, that, Norbert. Well, I wonder if this can be exploited if someone is using Teams in the browser and not the native client, because you can still use GIFs, although there's an app data path here for the log files, I'm not sure. That's enough Microsoft for a Linux podcast for today. I literally don't know anybody that would ever have a use case for Teams on Linux. Well, I mean, I'm on, I, I work. University students. Mm. I work with Windows and we don't use Teams at work. Yeah. Teams is unfortunate, mostly but... what we were using for university stuff during the lockdowns. So just anyhow, a... Norbert, apologies. We got a little confused because it sounded like you were still down that rabbit hole. On yeah, the I apologize thing. for cutting you off. That's wait, wait, terribly. In... Oh, I, I did say that. Moving on, I read the title. Oh, okay. I thought you were just cutting me off because the no. article because the article was kept repeating itself. No, no, we I cutting off from that we we were actually being. Nasty people that uh, didn't hear that pieces did of... not hear that you got done with your rabbit hole, and it just sounded like one big long deep rabbit hole. Yeah, so we were all thinking it. 
I'm just the only one that opened his mouth and stepped in it. But moving on, uh, moving on to our bi-weekly wanderings. Norbert, you're first up, and I won't cut you off. Hmm. The fact that you I the fact that you did not notice that I switched from the rabbit hole to the actual actual article means that you were not paying it paying attention to any of what I said during the not a word. <laughs> okay. We we were paying attention to it going on. I understand. <laughs> well, I had some issues with LibreOffice Calc where it would take a very long time to open a file, but only when opening a file for the first time after launching the program. Turns out it was because Calc was waiting for some printer information to be fetched, but I hadn't done any printing setup on the laptop. Uh, so I I found a solution online, which is to set print to PDF, print, print to PDF file as a default printer. But I didn't even have a way to do that as I had no printing related packages whatsoever. So I installed the printing, uh, pa the printing package group on Fedora that is called printing, at printing. Uh, which among others includes CUPS and and without having to do any configuration after I rebooted, CUPS was there and cal the calc problem just went away. And as far as, so the interesting thing is that I have LibreOffice installed as a flatback and I share my configuration is a configuration between the two distros I have Void and Fedora. And this was happening on both. But after I installed CUPS on uh, Fedora and I ran calc, it fixed itself. After I rebooted into Void and used the same configurations it was gone as well so probably if i if i were to uninstall the, the printing package group on fedora it would still be fixed so maybe it was it it didn't actually need cups to be installed it just needed it to resolve something i want to rant a bit about the state of rounded corners in gtk apps more specifically about how gtk3 and gtk4 are a little different uh since we're in a period transitioning between the two, and it creates some inconsistencies. For GTK apps, the the way, so not actually for both GTK and GTK4, the way Adweta does things is the windows will have rounded corners when floating and sharp corners when maximized in order to fill out the screen. For GTK4 apps, uh, now they have this flag design and they also have a very thin, I think one pixel wide uh, border around the, the window. Uh, and not the so the rounded corners and not only did, uh, go away if you maximize the window if you just snap it to one half of the screen, it will act as if it was maximized. This is a nice detail as there won't be little gaps at the corners. Uh, you start to, however, bump into some problems with when having GTK4 and GTK3 windows open in some automatic tiling environments. For example, Pop Shell on GNOME or the Sway window manager, which I'm using and I noticed this. When I open a GTK3 window on Sway in tiling mode, it will still have sharp corners. It will, unless I set it as a floating window, but if what everything is tiled in Sway, it will have sharp corners and it will behave as if it was a maximized window. But GTK4 apps will always have rounded corners in Sway, which is a little problematic because when tiling, windows always fill the available screen space and you will get little holes around the corners. Essentially, the window has a rectangular space to fill, but it has rounded corners. So you can just see a little bit of the of the wallpaper through that. And they also have this very thin uh, border, which 
they look like as if they were maximized, but they act as if they were a floating window, and it's uh, it's a little weird. I will probably have to experiment with turning uh, gaps on, and uh, that would probably look a lot better. But GTK3 apps will still act as if they were maximized, so they will have the sharp corners. So there is no perfect solution for me uh, to get things to look consistently at the moment. Maybe Stop I can... using GNOME. I said I'm not using GNOME. I'm using GTK Epson's way. If I was if I were using them on GNOME, that would probably take care of it because Matter apparently is uh, smart at handling GTK apps of any kind. But if you just use a GNOME GNOME environment, apparently they have this uh, inconsistency. But speaking of tiling and gaps, I previously mentioned that I'd really like there to be a feature to only have gaps around some windows and not others in a tiling environment. And turns out that PopShell can do sort of that with uh, the smart gaps feature. It will not put any gaps around the window if there's only one open on a workspace, but once you have two or more, gaps will appear. This could be useful for my use case when I usually have Firefox on its dedicated workspace as a single window. And if I don't open anything else there, it won't have gaps and my completely black Firefox theme can blend nicely in with the black top panel, be it either GNOME or anything else. Well, GNOME in this case, because it's PopShell. Except that when tiling with PopShell, both GTK3 and GTK4 apps will keep their rounded corners, as far as I could tell. So instead of seamless blending, there will be holes between the title bar and the panel at both ends. Well, if I just turn on gaps, this will not be a problem. Um, a few weeks ago, I talked about installing uBlock Origin and being very surprised about just how many trackers most websites have that you can otherwise not see, and it will just list them and block them if it can find them. Since then, I also installed it on my Android phone, where I also use Firefox. And it turns out, even if I have, and it turns out, even if an add-on has both a desktop and a phone version in Firefox, you have to install them separately, as if you install it on the desktop and have an add-on syncing turned on. So if I log in to Firefox on another device, it, the add-on will appear. It won't be automatically installed on a phone, so I just had to install uBlock Origin for Android Firefox separately, and it's doing its job. This that, is month... because, that is because Android is not Linux, and those are Linux extensions. No, it's a browser-specific extension. If I was to lo log into Firefox on Windows, it will still sync the extension. So desktop Firefox extensions are not uh, bound by the, the operating system. But these past months, I also re-evaluated re my stance on what apps I use on my phone. Previously, when using Android, my mindset was, well, I'm already using an OS that has a bunch of proprietary stuff in it, mainly Google Play services. So it's OK if I also use apps that are proprietary. Apps like Google Keep for my notes, uh, Pocket Cast for my podcasting, even my, my home app, my home screen app, uh, Nova Launcher, and so on. But then I installed AppJoy out of curiosity and App Store, which only has four software. And then I found an app uh, that I haven't heard about before that I found pretty useful. Sorry. And then I found a number of apps that I haven't heard about before and that I found really nice. One of them is Tracker Control, which can block ads and trackers on all apps. It lists the various web services the app tries connecting to, and it even gives you the ability to allow individual services in case the app needs them. For example, when I downloaded uh, my Reddit client, uh, Tracker Control kind of went overboard and it blocked it from connecting to Reddit itself because it's so Reddit as probably an unwanted uh, domain. So I had to just whitelist it so I could use the app. Uh, 
I was using my phone, tracker control was monitoring the apps and listing the services. And the results were, were kind of surprising. Uh, my third part rated client for which I paid for to get the ad free premium version, that is a separate app from the regular version, still had a bunch of trackers and libraries in it. And my alarm app had them too, and was even trying to send data to Facebook. But my alarm app is just supposed to wake me up. It doesn't even have to connect to the internet. If I don't set up, for example, if I could set up uh, it to play like an online radio station uh, as an alarm, but if I don't do that, it should. I mean, I get that it is very easy and convenient for app developers to put uh, these tools for, for analytics into apps. But uh, the drawback of that is that this, this data probably makes its way into the hands of uh, various large organizations who use them for data mining and uh, targeted advertising. So the good, nice thing about tracker control is if I have an app that I don't want to connect to the internet, I can just disable all the network access for the app completely with one tap. So I did that for my alarm because I just needed to wake me up in the morning and uh, various other applications. And I also started uh, finding some nice alternatives to the apps I was using. So for example, I switched from using PocketCast to using uh, AntennaPod, which I've heard uh, a couple of times from Bill, and I really like it, as well as, uh, well, surprisingly not many things, because even if an app is proprietary, it doesn't mean it's bad. For example, I'm using a Nova Launcher as my home screen on Android. It's not open source, but it also doesn't try to connect to any suspicious websites or, or advertising websites. So it's a good piece of software. I really like it. As, as long as it doesn't do anything unwanted, I don't really plan to switch to anything from it because I just like it so much. Yeah, this is why I'm running Calyx OS on my phone, which is a de-Googled Android. And I've been using the Aptoid and APK, APK Pure libraries rather than Google Play. And I can get almost every app that I need. Uh, the ones I can't get, I can still get the Pure APK, but they don't update. If I get it through one of these other stores, they will update as the updates come through. Yeah. But I uh, obviously, uh, Droid is part of the, uh, of the process. Uh, but the, the other Aptoid seems to be my best store, but APK, APK, I can't talk today. APK Pure seems to have the most apps uh, that are that don't include trackers. Anyhow, blah, blah, blah. Well, for now, I'm not really looking to de-Google completely because I need uh, the LGs. I, need, I, don't, I can't change the ROM on my phone because then I would lose uh, the best feature of the phone, the, the LG-specific deck that uh, needs this ROM for the firmware to function. And that's the reason I got this phone. If I ever get another phone that doesn't need this, I will probably try installing a custom ROM. But for now, I'm I'm happy to just be using some open source software even I, whenever I can. And there are, there are, for example, Google Photos and Gmail and Google Maps. So I'm there. There's a couple of uh, Google Maps that I'm fine with using. Also, I mentioned that I was. I think I mentioned I was trying to move from Gboard to Openboard, and then I switched back to Gboard because I needed the Japanese input functionality. But then I could just turn off uh, the internet access for Gboard. It probably doesn't do much because it tracker control wasn't showing anything. Uh, I could. It could pick up. I'm wanting uh, the voice texting on Gboard. Yeah. That's what it connects to the internet for. The thing about Gboard is that it's just a very nice 
to use piece of software. So as much as people try to, as much as people uh, criticize Google, they know how to make uh, present use software. Oh, I almost forgot that I switched to standard notes, which I've heard Joe mention a couple of times. Yeah, I use it all the time. Yeah. Do you pay uh, for the premium version? No. Okay. Yeah, because I I like it and it's really nice. They it looks like they they really take uh, privacy seriously. But the free version only has plain text notes, and I it would I would really like to have markdown uh, capabilities at some point. But I'm not sure if I would want to pay for it because it's a bit more expensive than I assumed it would be. But at one point, I maybe I will. I also tried uh, Joplin, which is similar, and it, it has Markdown, but it doesn't have a dedicated. Uh, I think it doesn't have a dedicated hosting solution. So, well, if you're if you're looking to pay, then um, Evernote has the most functionality that I, I've seen. Yeah, I moved away from Evernote when they yeah, reduced too. the amount of devices that you can have on a free account. That's so so far, to. yeah, Joplin and Standard Note just look really nice and feel really nice. Uh, I'm a bit, uh, I have a little mixed feelings because Standard Notes, uh, in Standard Notes, the dark theme on the desktop client and the web uh, client is a premium feature. I can absolutely understand uh, the Magnum functionality being premium, but I would have hoped to have a dark theme on the free version. Well, um, and the thing about Joplin is that, as far as I can tell, it doesn't. Uh, you don't need an account. You can choose to have. You can choose different backup solutions. For example, Google Drive. You can, for example, encrypt uh, the notes locally and then backup back them up to Google Drive and sync between devices. And I think they they have a uh, one that is hosted by them. I will have to look into that. For now, I just have my notes on standard notes and. I keep using Markdown uh, formatting, even though it doesn't show up as Markdown, but I just got used to uh, lists uh, starting with the dash and space. So real I can... Quick, I... Uh, real quick, a pro tip here for... I'm, I'm sorry, back on your keyboard. Go on, go on. Um, if you like Gboard, and, but you want a false, false alternative that is pretty much exactly like Gboard right down to the last detail except it's FOSS available on F-Droid. it doesn't have the voice capability but it's called florist board and it's available on F-Droid, and it is the best uh FOSS gboard alternative out there and, yeah and i have I, not been able to find anything that has voice to text that doesn't go through google it, yeah that, that's well, okay I, think, think of all the autocorrects that i'm avoiding by not having voice to text yeah yeah, and I, I have to rely on it. I, I tried getting by with Florist Board and then just switching back to the Google Voice, you know, every single time. But I need it. I need the voice texting more. Oh, it, it looks the nice. Than... Can it do Japanese? I we have yeah. to see and find out. Yeah. But anyway, that's about it for me. So, Moss, it's your Yeah, show. well, I was pleased to hear that Ubuntu Unity has become an official flavor. Linux Unplugged reported on the distro, the desktop, and the apps included, yet somehow they seem to have forgotten who the dev is, and these positive reports are all about the distro. This is the first time I've heard this distro reported on and judged on its own merits. I've had a long-running conversation with the dev, Rudra Sarasvat, and it's so exciting that his distro goes official right around his 13th birthday. Stew on that, people. Yeah, uh, we should, maybe we should have him on the show. Uh, in the near future again. 
It he's a schoolboy, and it's the middle of the night. He's in he's in Delhi. <laughs> oh yeah, because I, I yeah, remember. I remember well, thirteen a whole lot different than this kid must. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've but often wondered what happens to people like that when they get to be my age. I mean, well, he's, he's already an Ubuntu member and al already basically, you know, by by the time he graduates from junior high, he's probably going to have a, a job with Canonical, you know? So, like, when he's 50, <laughs> when he's my age, will he have the intelligence of a 260-year-old? No, I mean, uh, he'll probably be retired. In, in, no, no in when, when, he, when he's 50, he will have inherited Canonical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it's fat. It is excellent, though. Uh, that is an amazing project on its own merit. But yeah, when you when you consider, and only one of several that he's got, and you consider <laughs> who's doing it, you consider what's involved, and and by the way, I'm also struck by how th this this flavor has got a strange kind of uh, uh, popularity to it because I remember when Unity was forced down everybody's throats. All yeah, of the it hate. Was pretty bad then. And, it's like and, when you are in, you're in school and you have a mandatory reading list and you, so you have to read those books and it kind of makes you hate reading and after that later you will rediscover the fact that you maybe you like yeah. reading but if if you yeah, can't I, I just like finished read. reading war and peace last year so yeah <laughs> you'd have sooner been shot in the face than to read that back in school <laughs> no, you know no. Anyhow, let's continue. So, sorry. We? So I I think that <laughs> I think that people just realize people. I think after Unity went away from the official Ubuntu, uh, people realized that it is a genuinely good piece of software, and they just decided to start using it. And I've tried it a couple well, of times. On top of that, Rudra has made it better. He yeah. he has released seven point six. He is working on the future, which he calls Unity X. Which still have... the only desktop that gets multi-monitor right when you've got different resolutions and different refresh rates. They've had it. They got it right from the beginning. They were the only one to get it right from the beginning. And they're the only one that has it completely right now. It's still a modern concept. It still holds up, I think. But yeah. And again, I remember... And again, well, I'm let, emphasizing... Let's quit slobbering over Rudra's shoes and get on with my bi-weekly here. I installed Spiral Linux. It didn't go so well. It hung completely several times requiring reboot and OS Prober couldn't find it to add the boot menu when other distros on the machine control boot. Uh, I have installed Peppermint OS on both my laptops, originally as a review distro for Distro Hopper's Digest, but more because I seem to have gotten friendly with it. After 20 years of using Linux, I may finally be mature or experienced enough to like using a Debian-based distro. So there, I'm really upset with myself in that I'm spending nearly zero time updating and maintaining itsmos.com. It seems like Dale Dillon and I were really psyched when we started it, and since then it has really tailed off. I'm doing too many things to fish for ideas, and we never really finished cleaning up the WordPress look and feel. I'm not sure what to do, but recognizing the problem is the first step. I, I should do. also... I should also point out that our distro madness worked so well the first year. And then when we tried it again this last year and uh, Mintcast was missing all of their deadlines. So we couldn't really say, okay, we're going to close this at, at the end of this week, get your votes in. So that kind of blew a lot of things too, Joe. Sorry. Can I someone do... look at their audacity and see how long it recording has been running? One hour. It's one hour. Okay. Yep. 
Uh, I just noticed that I managed to accidentally stop mine at 39 minutes. So for the past 20 minutes, my audio wasn't recording. Whoops. So I... will have to get pulled from the YouTube. YouTube, yeah. Okay. I'll quickly export this. Is it 360, 396 or 76 here, right? Six. Okay, I'll quickly export this and then can we do any, another street? Actually, let me just wait until we get to the innards and let me start from there. It will be easier to edit. Why so I, I, will just, I will just not Look, talk. We might as well throw all of our Audacity recordings out the dang window and then just use the YouTube. Well, not necessarily because I can just uh, take the segment from YouTube and have everything else intact as it is. Okay, just start your recording up again. Or, but I'm I'm not sure if I will be if I'm not going to be the one editing. Uh, then do we just should we just uh, use the YouTube recording? I okay, I I, I I I will I will I will figure something out. Okay, so just let's for now let's get to the end of the wanderings. Okay, well, Moss, I, I wanted to say that you know um, if you had to pick a, a Debian-based distro. Peppermint is definitely a good choice. I am astonished at some of the special tools it has that nobody else does, that they feel advanced, they work beautifully, and it's just, I, I was just amazed. I, you'll get my report when we do just our hoppers. Okay, well, I have been busy for the last few weeks, but I'm not sure how much of it is really worth talking about. Uh, I fixed a couple of bikes, and I've been doing a lot of biking in the evenings when I can. I paid $10 for a bike that had parts that I needed, so I could fix two other bikes. I still need to get rid of the frame on that one, though, so it's not taking up space in my backyard. And and that fix is a lot cheaper than getting the parts separately. I mean, one of my bikes had the, uh, the, the spokes had actually um, bent so badly right at where they mount in that you could no longer mount a spoke in correctly. So that means the whole rear wheel is just done. And rear wheels are expensive on bikes. So paying $10 and getting one that was the exact right size, uh, the most I'll end up having to do is replacing the cartridge. And then I'm planning on using the bearings from the front wheel on that one, which is extremely bent, and um, <clears throat> using that to fix another bike. Um, also, in regards to bike, uh, I redid my uh, light mod my um, headlight mod that I have on my bike so that it would have a better seal and not let water into the PCB. Um, this replaces the AAA battery adapter that um, a lot of flashlights have, but it replaces it with a um, micro USB PCB. The, it's the TP4056, and it's usually used for charging 3.7 volt batteries. Um, this is so that I can use any USB power bank that I have to power the headlight on my bike. So uh, it, it's much easier than trying to keep enough AAAs around or to do an 18650 mod directly onto the bike. I just grab one of the many power banks that I have, hook it in, turn it on, and it works. So um, I, I really like that modification. This is the second time I've done it. I just think I did a lot better this time, um, and it, it looks good. I still have to hook it up. I did the mod day before yesterday, so um, 
I've also started my next series of Bluetooth mods. I have that set of really low cost adapters that I picked up from five and below. Um, I'm going to be trying out making a uh, neckband headset since good ones are getting harder to find and I can't find, and if I can't find what I want, I'm going to try and make it. I have 3D printed a neckband that I found on Thingiverse and I'll be modifying one of the cheap headsets to be 3.5 millimeter. Um, this will be the easiest version that I make with minimal modification, but also will be the one with the least amount of battery life and uh, difficult to replace parts on if anything goes bad. I do have ideas for what the next few iterations will look like. And the plan after the first time is to not use any glue uh, to make the device. I'm going to set it up so that there's actual uh, screw holes and everything can be um, repaired or repurposed as needed. So if it breaks down, I can just redo everything if needed. Um, I, I've also started hanging out on Discord with a group hosted by the coder, and I have done a lot of live streaming of my soldering. Mostly it has been fixing headphones. These guys spend a lot of time fixing laptops and consoles. So they do a lot more micro soldering than I do and are quite good at it. Um, I do enjoy working and talking with them and hope that I'm able to keep up with the extra time that it requires. This also means that I went through and fixed a bunch of the headphones that I had lying around waiting for me to fix them. Um, I also had a couple during that time period that I deemed unfixable, which gives me quite a few good parts to work with, like batteries and cables to do with my modifications. Um, moving on. One of the other shows that I'm on introduced me to an application called Audio Bookshelf. Um, it is similar to Plex, but specifically for audiobooks. I have it set up and I've added in my audiobooks, but much like Plex, it is dependent on folder structure. This means that I'm going to have to spend a lot of time cleaning up my audio library if I want to use it properly. But from what I have seen, it is a good setup, even allowing for changing the playback speed. Although the max speed is 3x, it also allows for downloading. So if I need higher speeds, I can download and use another application. It kind of reminds me of um, Subsonic, which I used to use, but with a better, more updated front end, and it seems much less finicky. Um, <clears throat> now, my left shoulder has been causing me a lot of problems. The tendons are causing me a lot of pain uh, to the point that I've stopped using free weights for upper body training for now. So I've been doing a lot of uh, leg workouts and I've been trying out different band exercise for upper body. I've been able to get some pretty okay workouts in using bands. It has been interesting to try and get the balance between pain and getting a good workout. I do have a doctor's appointment, but it's about a month away. The pain starts in my shoulder and it it's mostly gone and then um, starts up again right at the elbow and then down through the tendons in my arm and my forearm and my wrist and into my hand. Um, if you have any ideas on good band workouts or workouts that I can do with an almost torn rotator cuff, I'm more than happy to hear them. Give me some ideas, people. JB at mintcast.com. Um, that's org. Is it dot org? Yep. Mintcast.org. Okay. Mintcast.org. 
And that's basically what I've been up to. Um, other than I did order a 12 terabyte hard drive to add to my computer. And I'll tell you more about that on the next show or on the Saturday show. Bill, what have you been up to? Well, a lot went on since I uh, appeared on Mintcast last time. But for the sake of time, I'll narrow my description down to a couple of key things I've been working toward for the past couple of weeks. First, uh, many people no doubt remember the slight, shall we say, challenge many Arch users had week before last uh, when after an update, a uh, well, an update was pushed to the Grub bootloader, which left many people with an unbootable system, and I was no exception. Um, I, I have one machine, well, at the time I had one machine running proper Arch with XFCE. That was the one that I normally take on the road. It's just a lightweight machine that I use to do just the light, you know, usual stuff. Not real heavy, intensive workloads, but, you know, the light browsing and things. And after the update, it was left unbootable. And then I have another machine, which is considerably more powerful, that's running. It was running Endeavor, which is, for all intents and purposes, just Arch with a fancy installer and a few extra packages. Um, exact same thing. Ran the update. And... It uh, stopped working as we stopped booting as well, and I was all too aware of the the go to fix that was out there, and uh, that would have been fine. But I went ahead and used it as an opportunity to try out the new Arch install script that is on the uh, uh, default ISO, and I went into it with some rather I don't know I had moderate expectations that it would be robust enough to do all the things i nor normally i set up a butterfs root with um sub volumes and all that stuff and in the past using the traditional method of installing arch you would have to mount the root file system add the sub volumes unmount that system and then remount each sub volume separately and then, you know, this this was a, a lot of things that you had to get right. Otherwise, you would you would have an your system just wouldn't install correctly. Well, this installer actually speaks ButterFS. And as you go through it, it basically presents you with a list of things that have to be done. And you can go through that list one, one by one or you can skip around whatever you want to do. And the butterfs option will actually will ask you do you want to create a butterfs volume with sub volumes and uh well first it'll, it'll ask you if you just want to use the best you know have us figure out your layout and all that or do you want to uh choose uh, what volumes you want in what order and such you know and but either way presents you with the option of creating and uh using sub volumes and then it acts it asks you if you want to mount those with the compression enabled which is brilliant as well because in the past you would have to uh specify that during the mount before you would you know do all of the uh installation and all that and it made it it was one more layer of complexity with this with this it just it knows how to do it and it, it sets it up for you right the first time and then it also will ask you if you want to do uh encryption and it handles that brilliantly 
set up the passwords and then it's got uh, you move on to from one step to the next and it's got the choice of all the desktops and uh, it gives you a choice between uh grub and uh the default interestingly enough is the yep. system d boot yep which is fine did you make uh, the wise choice uh, system d boot i'm not going to be caught out again no yep. i didn't go refined uh in order most... to do that you would have had to like add it because you've got another option where you can add packages uh which you you need to add firefox to that list of additional packages before it starts the installer before you could do that but you would have to like bootstrap when you do the bootstrap command you would just add all your additional packages that you wanted right from the get-go to that command well this just makes it a little bit simpler in my mind this is no less simple this is no more complex than than the uh graphical installers which in my opinion some of them are a little too focused on the uh on the visual aspect of it and sometimes you can like the anaconda installer for example you can sometimes forget to do something correctly and then you end up with a machine that ain't quite right but anyway this this takes you through step by step and then i i take a look and make sure because if you don't have it set up it'll uh it'll leave like you'll you'll have the option then it'll leave it blank so you'll know that that still needs to be done um everything from uh setting up your uh, your keyboard that's all set up by default uh, anaconda also marks things as incomplete uh, if you haven't done them it does but there's you know some people can be some people have a little bit of cognitive you know things going on to where if you got too much in front of the, in front of a person sometimes it's it's hard to focus in and to be fair they are working on a different installer that will be yeah. step by step and not the same i've but never had too much of a problem with it but you know i i, guess, I haven't know. either the my one complaint about anaconda is that you have to click on things and buttons at the top but the error messages will show up at the very bottom so it's easy to miss them if you're not yeah. if you don't know where to look for them but yeah uh, grab itself is just i don't think it's uh the best solution well so i was it, under the impression that if you were going to have an encrypted file system you had to go with grub because it was the only one that knew how to handle but the way this installer works is it handles the encryption through lux so all of that is done before the bootloader is even ran it's or before it it system d boot handles it just fine so i've got encryption set up well not on my either of my machines but i played around with it on a virtual machine and even with the encryption enabled you still have the option of running system d boot which i was uh i was really happy to see that was a thing yeah i really think that distros like fedora open should just adopt and use system d boot uh, an argument against that might be that it's UEFI only, so if someone wants to install them on a legacy boot system, they will have to use Grub. But for a while, the Arch uh, Live ISO would just use system boot if it detects UEFI and fall back to Grub if it detects uh, legacy. They just started using uh, Grub for everything again. But the installer could just auto-detect whether it, if it's uh, UEFI or, or boot yeah. or BIOS. And if it detects UEFI, this was could just default to installing system boot, which is a, a less complicated uh, boot booting uh, 
Process. That is very possible because if I remember right, some of these installers used to uh, check and see if you had if you had 32-bit or BIOS, it would use SysLinux as your bootloader. And then if you had 64-bit, it would just automatically install and set up Grub for you. So it's very possible to do. Um, but but I, the, I really like the fact that Arch defaults to system boots. Yeah, it it's much better. more simple. You know, there's a lot less going on, and it's it's a couple of config files with three, four lines, and that's that's basically it. The only problem is you don't have fancy theming or anything like that. So, but who really cares? I suppose as much as I like theming, uh, both in my desktop and I'm also theming my refined boot menu. If I were to switch to system boot, I think I quite like the the minimalistic look of it. Yeah. So I, I like Refine because you can have a side-by-side -side list of icons. But if I wanted to use System Boot because it just has a list, like a vertical list, I like how it's very minimalistic. So I don't really have a problem with not being able to tame it. I'm not even sure if you can tame it. Maybe you can. No, not really. I've never seen anybody do it. The, the Git package comes with like this Arch PNG image. But it's not really. It doesn't say what to do with it, so I don't know. I don't know what that's what what that's all about. But no, for the most part, it's just a basic bootloader. But but for my mind, the way the way my thinking works is, it's part of System D, so it's already on the system. Not necessarily because System D is not a single binary. You can just have parts of it installed and other not other parts. Well, so by that's default that's with the art. that's. But that's the big misconception about system D. People say that it's bad because it does too much, but it's not a single thing doing uh, many things. It's it has many parts, and you can just have some parts on the system and not other parts. Yeah, well, when you install Arch with the with the default installation of system D, you're getting system D boot whether you're using it or not. It's really? a, yeah, yeah. It's you literally just you install nothing. You just uh, execute the command uh, boot control boot boot ctl uh dash install and that sets up the initial that puts the stub in the efi system partition and then you just go write the couple of you've got uh you've got a loader uh file that you have to write which tells it which one of the loader f entries is the default and then you've got a couple of the default like the the timeout and then uh the size the console size and then the you have a entries file these are all just little text files uh where it tells for each entry you've got the image for the uh init and then uh your microcode you have to specify all these and then you've got the kernel commands in each entry file where you specify the, the where the root of the file system is and then read write and then you can put all your quiet splash and all those commands for each one but that's you know that's as simple as it gets though there's there's nothing to install anyway moving on uh the odyssey continues with regards to building a new more powerful nextcloud server um i recently decided decided to replace the rock pro 64 i've been using with a decidedly more powerful albeit older think center m93p with a fourth gen i7 uh this was anybody that was watching the round table i don't know what like three weeks ago this was uh i literally bought this thing right in the middle of that 
show moss turned me on to it and i bought it i'm happy with it um the odyssey continues with trying to get ecc ram for it and if anybody well no you wouldn't have noticed but i've, I've bought ram like four times for this thing that i thought was right it fit it matched up all of the numbers that i thought it was that i thought were important i plugged it in and the thing just starts beeping loud and and uh re uh, prints out on the screen that it can't find any ram this i've probably bought 300 dollars worth of ram for this thing that don't work so anybody need anybody needs any uh ddr3 desktop ram <laughs> let me know ecc ram that is um yeah so yesterday i lamented that fact on our meeting and moss did a quick search and with minimal effort found what is probably going to be the right ram in uh, other words i gave you another set, set of chips that isn't going to work <laughs> i only ordered one this time because i learned my lesson i ordered four of them to have 32 gigs of ram uh and so i'm stuck with it this time i only ordered one that way if it doesn't one, work, one to test and then three more later yeah three more later correct that way i'm minimizing as much as possible i haven't even tried the company would probably refund me if i really wanted to but i don't know it, it, for me it's it's not worth the trouble but more on that later i'm still for right now our next cloud server is still on the rock pro the problems i've been having with it might be as a result of it not having ecc ram and my insistence on using zfs as the uh as the file system for the for the data directory because i want to take advantage of the data integrity that zfs is so famous for it might be a you know it might be that it might be just that it's it's an arm based it's not very it's not really a consumer product it's it's more of a product for tinkerers and and enthusiasts you know people like me that wanted to mess with it well i want to set up something that we here on the show uh can someday perhaps switch to it and be able to rely on it looking forward to that you have to remember i did a similar search to find a battery for my uh ups and wound up with something that looked exactly right but was 75 percent too large yeah <laughs> i mean you sometimes i get lucky i just didn't know it was that difficult to find ram because i've got every other machine's got ddr4 in it and you slap ddr4 in it and it just works um for example the the machine that i'm my big work machine here that i'm on talking to you with i just put some corsair vengeance ram in it and i really didn't give much uh effort into the search other than ddr4 desktop and ordered it shipped it slapped it in there and it works you know so i didn't think I didn't think I needed much beyond the size of the RAM, but apparently this this thing is <clears throat> far more picky when it comes to that RAM. Uh, if that does not work, I'm just going to use the I'm just going to use the uh, RAM that it comes with. I ordered some more of that. That way, I can build it up to 32 gigs of RAM, and then instead of zfs i'm just going to go with butterfs the the reason is zfs relies heavily on the ram it does a lot of pre-caching before it writes and if you have information that's sitting in what i guess this is probably a 
gross oversimplification, but like a right cue, I guess. Um, it can flip a bit while it's in the RAM, and then it gets written that way. And once it's written, uh, there's really nothing ZFS can do to fix it because that's the data that was sent to it by the system itself. Well, ECC RAM has an extra bit of... Uh, it's got an extra chip on it, basically, that gives it some capability to uh, fix errors before they get written to the drive itself. That is the limit of my understanding of how that works technically. Um, but I know that it does work because this this machine's got my Jellyfin server on it, and it's got 64 uh, gig of ECC RAM, and I have literally never had a single error it does a uh, scrub once a week and then once uh, once a month as well. And it's li literally never came up with a single error. So I know that the concept works. Um, but like I said, if I can't get the RAM, to, the ECC RAM to work in that thing, I'm going to go with ButterFS because it's got most of the same. OK, uh, it's got much of the same uh, benefits as ZFS does. It's just not quite as mature and it's not it doesn't do a lot of these things automatically it doesn't self-heal the way zfs does with zfs if you like for example if you've got a raid set up with like for example in this server i've got three 12 terabyte drives on a zfs mirror and if i play a video from this thing zfs is comparing all three of the the, the data on all three drives and and you know, lining that up with the checksums. And if there's a problem with any of that data, it, it's it got enough parity to go back and fix it as it's playing. Now with ButterFS, you would have to, you wouldn't know that there was a problem until you ran the scrub and then it would fix the problem with the scrub. With CFS, it's done automatically if the file's being read. So that's one benefit. Um, but it's 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 important to me to get this thing up and running and get it running reliably um, to try to now we we mentioned a little bit about this earlier to try to crowbar everybody away from their dependence on Google and I think that has become more important recently than it ever has before. Uh, recently, a New York Times article and I and I'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, told the tale of a father who, after taking photos of his son's swollen genitals, was banned from the Google services he had been using to back up his family photos taken with his phone, as well as his Gmail and other services. This story has become an arguably viral topic of discussion on many podcasts and has stirred up much disdain within the greater tech community. As a dad myself, I can tell you there is no worse thing to be accused of on earth than a uh than child molesting now for those that don't, aren't aware the article basically uh outlines a story about a dad uh he his he had an infant son or a toddler and the kid had a rash in the genital areas and got on one of those video calls with the doctor that have been that have been popular in recent times for reasons the doctor says, well, can you take a picture of it so I can see what's going on? Takes the picture, sends it to the doctor. The doctor says, oh, yeah, that's this thing. I'm going to go ahead and write your prescription. Go get that. Put it on the region. And Bob's your uncle. Well, 
Google Photos backs up all of your photos to your Google Photos account automatically. In my case, it was backing them up whenever I was connected to Wi-Fi and charging the phone. Google has AI that is going through people's photos because folks, once you once you upload your data of any kind to Google, you don't own it anymore. You you are in you are in very little control of what happens to that data after it goes to these services. Google's AI flags it as possible child pornography, sends it off to the authorities. The authorities look at it like, what what is this? What do you what do you what are you getting us involved in involved in this? The guy is accused outright of child pornography and is uh, Google account is subsequently blocked. And that is it, full stop. And from what I understood, even after he went back to prove that it was for his doctor, it might have gotten him off with the law, but Google did not reinstate his account. From Google's perspective, what they don't want to be wrong about is if this guy, if the police say, no, this guy is okay, um, the pictures are fine, and then... Google says, oh, okay. And then it turns out the police were wrong. Later on, the guy does something else that is that is uh, less ambiguous. And uh, it, it turns out Google was in possession of, of the necessary data to stop this guy a long time ago. I guess Google feels it is within their remit to make decisions about this ahead of time. And, and I can understand Google erring on the side of caution when it comes to the safety of kids. Does this still suck? Yes. Can you turn it, off the Google Photo Save feature? Yes. Yes. You can turn it off. You can uninstall it. If you can't uninstall it, you can disable it. But for crying out loud, you can also just choose not to use it. So, but that, that, the thing about it is it has to be actively chosen, though. From the best of my knowledge, if you buy an Android phone, by default, you're going to have photo, Google Photos. And by default, it's going to upload to your Google account. Yeah, most people have those things on and don't even think about it. Oh, great. I can it. check and see what I was looking at last week. Yeah. The the problem from a technical perspective is that these are very valuable services. I can tell you after learning how to manage Nextcloud and setting it up and having to well, manage it, keep it up to date and manage any problems that come along. There is value in these services that Google give you. Um I think that that's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because you you want to you want the services, but you don't you don't want things like this to happen. So uh, technology it, and convenience is inherently usually a two-edged sword because uh, convenience in technology can also uh, lead to knowledge being lost in the population. For example, how most people had to uh, cultivate their own food now they don't because there's uh, little, uh, there's a uh, basically because of the machines in agriculture, just a few people can. Uh, uh... Uh, some some technology can breed a, a form of apathy, where people become dependent on the technology in order to, like for what you're describing, you know, food and things like that. You might, you you very possibly could end up with an entire society of people that don't know how to go and grow food for themselves anymore or, or cook food without a microwave. I mean, it, that those things exist. Um, and I suppose that same logic can be applied here where we have to, 
we we have these services available to us and to be fair all of these details are laid out in the eula when you set up these services you're you're agreeing to it when you when you but start a google just, account yeah most people just don't read it that's and, and i'm you know i'm guilty of well, that most people don't read it because there's nothing you can do about it you either no. accept or you don't use the service that's yeah that's basically and when you have a google phone you don't have the option of not using the service you well you like you, you do because like Bill said, you can disable various applications. Yeah, you can. You you got granular control, but the problem is, it's only people like us that have an interest in these things at all that will even attempt to go and replace one of these things with anything else. Um, but also, in order for uh, Google Photos to do the automatic uh, backups, you have to enable that. So even if you have Google Photos by default on the phone, it will only even you start it for the first time, it will ask you whether you want to do automatic uh, uh, backing up, and it will only do it if you click agree. I I think by default it's got it enabled. You you might have to agree to it, but I think there you again, it will give you a pop up, and you have to either choose yes or no to get to the actual app. As far and as I, I remember, think that's almost no different than for most people. It's going to be no different than than just the. Uh, click next 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 thing you know they don't really understand what they're agreeing to but they just they just want the thing to work and they want to be left alone and that's fine and good but you have to be aware that things like this are inevitably going to happen sometimes there are those license agreements where you actually have to scroll to the bottom for the agree button to be clickable yeah, i haven't had one of those in a long time that i can recall but yeah i do remember and I couldn't recall offhand what they were, but I, 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 I've been annoyed by those. But then I get to thinking, well, you know, you really probably ought to, especially if you're using it for important things, you know, or if you're using it for something that could be misconstrued at some point, especially with when it comes to things like Google services. I mean, I, I think I had Gmail right in the beginning when it was a uh, when it was a uh, you had to get an invitation to be on it because I was still a part of the university where I was attending and somebody there was working in the office and they said, well, you need to try this new thing. And I thought, yeah, new email address. That's just what I need. But I ended up doing it. And then I liked the way it worked so much. I kind of switched my whole life over to it. And then as services got added, I mean, in those days it was Gmail and the search and there was a few other things, but not, much of anything people were kind of roped into using like they are now that's the thing google knows how to make the things convenient to use yeah. and pleasant to use because they're all too aware that that's that is the necessary component to coming up with a service that people are not likely to look to look for alternatives to this kind of drives home the point though um if you have the skill set to look for something else. I think it's kind of, I, I think it, it implores upon people like us to go and find these things. That way, at least somebody's using them and the word is getting out and then these services are improved upon. Because the reality is when it comes to backing up photos, there's really no, I mean, there, there's people out there looking for alternatives, but if you want the benefits of having geotagging done automatically and then being able to really simply search for, if, you, if you've just got 
as many people nowadays do, you've got millions of photos backed up and you want to search for a photo that was taken in a specific place and that has maybe dogs in it. You know, like like I, I got this picture somewhere with a, my dog in it that died four years ago, but I, I just can't seem to find it. Well, you can with Google Photos, you can search for any photos that have a dog in it. And there you go. You know that there is really not much of an alternative to that out there. So at present, uh, some of the things I'm going to talk about, you're, you're going to, you're going to have to sacrifice stuff like that for the sake of keeping your photos uh, backed up in a way that is, you know, respecting of your privacy and, you know, your, the integrity of your data. Uh, but again, as a dad, I can't think of anything else, anything worse to be accused of than taking pictures of one of my children for the sake of sexual gratification. I find these stories appalling and it's things like this that drive me, well, it drive home the importance of learning alternatives to Google services and how to self-host some of the infrastructure, uh, some, of the, some of which we've come to take for granted. Um, this dystopia is not likely to improve. Uh, and I think it's important to get things into place as quickly as possible to replace things like Google Docs, Google Photos, and the like. Um, in the case of our show, NextCloud is a perfectly usable alternative because it has the benefits of Google Docs with the use of an integrated LibreOffice um, it's got the calendaring um, and the drive. Uh, it's all it's all a matter of you know how much drive space you can afford. Right now we've got the two drives that are in this thing are a couple of two terabyte Iron Wolf drives, and uh, I think that will be enough with with the ZFS compression and all that to store stuff for a long time. Um, but I think, you know, if, if I was able to convince everybody to do that, it would be a slow process and it wouldn't be painless. Um, but it also needs to be performant. You know, it needs to be able to be something that we can use to do the show editing that has the features that we're used to having. And, you know, it's the, the transition would be would be as painless as possible. So it's it's kind of important to get it set up right the first time. And things like this article that have recently come to light. Um, <laughs> things like this article kind of drive home the importance of it so anyway that's it for me anybody else got anything if not moving on to housekeeping and announcements thank you for listening to this episode of mintcast if you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at HTTP. That should be HTTPS. Uh, mintcast.org. Our next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on October 2nd, 2022. Next live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on September 24th, 2022. Get the live stream converted to your time zone with the link in the show notes. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash live stream. On to wrap up. Joe, how can we find you out there? 
Oh, if you like the sounds of my voice, you can catch me on a couple of my other shows. I'm on Linux Link Tech Show, which you can find at tllts.org. Or you can catch me on Linux Lugcast, which is linuxlugcast.com. Um, you can send me an email directly, jb at midcast.org, or you can hit up my Kofi site, link in the show notes, and buy me a coffee. Moss? Well, I'm on every week on Full Circle Weekly News, uh, every month or so on Distro Hopper's Digest. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and my other information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Uh, you can email me at bill at mincast.org. I'm bill underscore H on Discord, at WCHauser3 on Twitter, and WCHauser3 on Facebook as well. Also, check out my other podcast. Uh, the website is 3ftpodcast.org. The name of that podcast is Three Fat Truckers, where we live, well, it appears on YouTube and downloadable on the opposite weekends of uh, Mincast. Norbert, how about you? You can send me an email at norbert at mintcast.org. And Nishant wasn't with here us today. And Nishant, and Nishant wasn't uh, here with us today, but you can send him an email at nishant at mintcast.org. He's recongost on Instagram, recongost at github, ghost.recon on Discord, and maverick00783 on Steam. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Uh, Norbert, Londoner, Tony H., and all others for our audio edi editing, Josh Lowe, and myself for all the work on the website, Hopstar for our local logo, InitRD for the anim animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time sinks, myself for hosting the Linode, which runs our website, archive.org for hosting our audio files, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about each fortnight. Thanks, Thanks, Clem. Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast